Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Jude 3 Project Podcast. Before we get into today's episode, I'm so excited because Courageous Conversations is back. We weren't able to have it last year because of COVID, but this year it is back with a vengeance. We are so excited for the seven amazing topics we have, Christianity and white supremacy, rediscovering early African Christianity, black religions and the next generation, slavery in the Bible, politics in the pulpit, truth and trauma, patriarchy in the church. We are squeezing a lot of courageous conversations this year in Washington, D.C., September 3rd and 4th at National Community Church. Listen, you don't want to miss it. Register today at CourageousCombos.org. Now, this is a hybrid conference. We have 250 in-person tickets available, and they are on the way to selling out. Um, So the next option would be the virtual pass. All of that is available at CourageousCombos.org. I'm so excited about it. We have amazing panelists. We have Dr. Christina Edmondson, Dr. Howard John Wesley, Dr. Esau McCauley, Dr. Eric Mason, Dr. Lisa Bowens, Dr. Otis Moss, Dr. Marvin McMickle, Dr. Vince Bantu, Dr. Jacqueline Rivers, Dr. Cheryl Sanders. It's going to be amazing. I would not miss it, whether in person or virtually. So get your tickets today at CourageousConvos.org. Without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Thank you for watching another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project. And today I'm joined by a special guest who's no stranger to the Jew3 Project. He's been on here more times than I can count. He's a dear friend of mine and he is now famous. I saw that he got a blue check on Twitter. <laughs> Dr. Esau McCauley. <laughs> oh man, I knew he was going to come for the blue check. I- <laughs> I mean, I thought somebody actually told me they was like, you know, Esau got a blue check. I was like, no, I didn't even know. And then I looked, I was like, oh, he's famous, famous now. No, man, <laughs> I'm not worried. They can keep that blue check. I mean, that's fine. Jesus is Lord. That's all that really matters. Um, so no, I was actually thinking since you got your new fancy studio, you haven't been calling me your boy anymore. So I didn't know whether or not <laughs> you had graduated. You had graduated beyond kind of um, my. Uh, Back when you was when you was in the basement, you was calling me every week. But now that you got your studio, I don't hear from you anymore. <laughs> That's not true, Esau. I mean, I talked. We talk. We do talk less. Yes, but that's just because our schedules are, yeah. are yeah. at a, a faster pace than they, they used to be. Your life is complicated. Um, <laughs> for those who who don't know who you are, which I don't know who that how they wouldn't because of the blue check and because you have a massive book out called reading while black <laughs> let let them know who you who you are um well i mean my name is isa mccauley i teach new testament at wheaton college uh, uh write stuff in different places new york times washington post christianity today i got a book i guess it's over there wherever it is somewhere over there um reading while black uh african-american biblical interpretation as an exercise in hope my field of study is the new testament particularly paul um, and also African-American biblical interpretation. Yes. And Esau is such a good sport. Uh, I've put him in a number of courageous conversations mm-hmm. that have been the easiest ones yeah. out there. And he's just such a such a fantastic sport. So thank you, Esau, for taking all the easy topics at Courageous. Yeah. We, we greatly appreciate it. All of y'all, well, I, they can they can sign up online, right? If I want to encourage everyone now to like sign up for the new Courageous Conversations, the ones that are going to, we're back, the post-COVID um, yes, Courageous Conversations. I want to encourage y'all to come on back. I got to clean up my um, stuff here. I got my receipts. I got to be all professional. Let me get that out of the way. <laughs> can't put the yes. Bible on the ground, though, because I don't want my mama yelling at me. That's the word of the Lord. 
It's right yeah. here. In the state. Big Bible. Um, yeah. yeah, like Esau said, make sure you register for Courageous Conversations. We are almost sold out for in person. So if you plan on coming in person to join us in DC, you want to register soon before there are no more tickets for you to for you to register. We're only registering 250 people in person because of COVID, and we want to be sensitive and we want to do social distancing and make sure everybody's safe. Um, but if you're not able to come in person, make sure you register for virtual attendance. We will not be live streaming like last year, like well the year before. We won't be live streaming, so the only way you could see it is by a virtual pass. So make sure you register at CourageousConvos.org for in-person or virtual attendance. Uh, that was a little commercial for Courageous. Esau is going to be there along with a host of other people, so you don't want to miss it. I think it's going to be one of our best years yet. It's called The Theme is Reclaiming Christianity. Um, so without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. We're going to be talking about something that the internet loved when we put it out there that you were going to be on to talk about this. People were sending questions left and right. We won't be able to get to all of the questions because there's so many, but we're trying to create a framework to help answer um, the questions that you ask uh, because there's broader questions that will help with the, the more narrow questions. Um, Esau, we're talking today about how to interpret the Old Testament in light of the new. Uh, when you think about that question, how do you interpret the Old Testament in light of the new as a New Testament scholar? Yeah, I find it was really interesting to look at the conversation, the question that was posed on social media versus how this functions as an academic discipline in New Testament studies. So forgive me if I'm like shift the conversation a little bit. It seems to me that the question that they were trying to get at was how do you interpret the Old Testament as a Christian? That's different than when a biblical scholar talks about the use of the Old Testament in the New. And that means the, the use of Old Testament passages in New Testament text. So I'm going to answer the first question of how I think about the Old Testament as a Christian, which I think is what some of the people are trying to get at. Now, this is this is admittedly not my field of expertise. I thought we were going to do talking about when the New Testament uses Old Testament passages. But I think that they the question seems to display an interest on how we think about the Old Testament as Christians. One of the things that I try to do as a reader of the Bible is keep an idea where I am in the narrative when something is occurring. And so when I preach or talk about that text that under discussion, I preach about it in the course of redemptive history. So if we're in this context of the united monarchy and David is engaging in certain behavior, for example, David does what he, you know, he does what he does with Bathsheba, he gets himself into trouble. And God's judgment is upon him. And what you see from that is the ultimate division of the kingdom and all of the things to kind of reverberate from David's sin. And so when I preach about that, I preach about, first of all, what David did, his sinfulness, and how that sinfulness reverberates down through the generations. And then I talk about a little bit about how in the Bible they begin to look at because of David's sin, these prophecies are the greater David. The greater David, who's not going to be like the David or Solomon or the other kings who failed, but a David who's actually going to be a man after God's own heart fully. And then there's Jesus. And so Jesus, as the climax of the narrative, is how I bring these issues related to um, things like in the historical books as it relates to what we see later. The other thing that I try to recognize as someone who's reading the Old Testament in light of the New is that, especially as it relates to Old Testament narrative, Everything that is described is not therefore commended. One of the examples that I use a lot is the first person who we see in the Old Testament who has two eyes, for example, is a guy named Lamech. But Lamech is also the guy who is exceedingly violent. He says, you know, God, um, he said, if any man wounds me, I'm going to kill him. And so you see this idea that as it relates to the, the kind of the, the beginning of polygamy in the New Test in the Old Testament is a character whose character whose who's very personality is untrustworthy. And as you go through the, to look at the other other places where multiple wives occur in the Bible, you see that oftentimes that leads to drama and dysfunction. And so as the narratives of the of the Bible are recording events, one of the questions you have to ask yourself is well why are they recording these things and what are we supposed to take from them? Are we supposed to take from the fact that they're recorded that, that this is something we should commend? And so then you say, okay, then you take a step back and you look at the analogy that God uses oftentimes to talk about, for example, um, relationships. And he says all of the time, Israel, I am your husband. 
I chose you as my single solitary wife who I'm faithful to. And so even though you have all these descriptions of polygamy in the um, in the Old Testament, when God wants to use an analogy about his love for Israel, he often uses an analogy of his faithful love to his spouse, whom he betrayed and whom, whom he loved and whom he, whom he chose. And so you see that in this in, in the biblical text itself, there's sometimes tensions between things that are, are described and things that are affirmed. And I think that a lot of times Christians get themselves twisted into knots trying to figure out how we can affirm something that the rest of the Bible reveals to us as being like wicked. So when you say like Abraham shouldn't have like lied and said that Sarah uh, was his sister and sold her off, then you can clearly say that's what I think the text supposed you to understand to understand that Abraham isn't necessarily engaging in behavior that is commended by God, but it's showing that God is being gracious to him despite these things. And so when I try to read the, the, the Old Testament, broadly speaking, the first question I ask if it's a narrative is where in the course of redemptive history it, is, it, is it occurring and how do later events throw fresh light on the things that I've read earlier? And so that's probably the best thing that I can say about historical books. I can say some other things about how we think about poetry and how we think about um um, proverbs and how we think about these other things. One of the other kind of prime common misunderstandings of even things like proverbs is proverbs speak about things that are generally true, not things that are always true. And so when the proverbs say, if you raise your children in the, in the fear and admonition of the Lord, when they're older, they want to depart from it. It's not making this promise that if you download Bible into your kids, you get nothing but perfect Christians. It's saying a generally true thing that if you raise children to love Jesus or love God, generally speaking, that it's better off than if you do that than if they don't. And so I think that a lot of times Christians get into trouble when they are miscategorizing what texts are supposed to do and trying to reconcile things that God doesn't want you to reconcile um, with what it means to be a Christian. And you, and, and oftentimes you see the gap between this, what's going on in an old Testament passage. And this is how God's full desire for how he wants humanity to function becomes clear later on in the narrative or sometimes in the, in the new Testament itself. Mm -hmm. That's helpful. I think the challenge and what confuses people because when you think about black churches, there's a lot of preaching in the Old Testament. Yes. And so when you preach in the Old Testament, you're looking at narratives constantly and you're extracting principles yes. from them. And you're you're talking about the story of Abraham and then you're making it applicable to life today. Yes. And so when people hear a sermon on a narrative, they think of, they confuse principles with commands. Yes. And when they confuse principles with commands, the way they view the Old Testament becomes distorted. So some people, some pastors maybe reach too far for the application to yeah. use the principle with the command. Or I would, I would say, I would say that narrative, every narrative detail isn't an interpretive, um, like point to be made. And so at a certain point, I'm trying, I'm trying to think of a good example without getting, I mean, here's a New Testament one that is it's completely fine to do it. I want to do that one because I don't want to. I don't want to come for anybody's sermon. I don't want y'all yelling at me. Um, <laughs> so, for example, let me give you an example. David, Daniel, and the lion's den. Um, the the whole point of the entire the various narratives of Daniel in that book is the people of Israel are are in exile. And while they're in exile, they're having all of these, these pressures to compromise their faith. And they don't compromise their faith. And even though they don't compromise their faith, God intervenes on their behalf. And so the point of the, of, of the various Daniel narratives are, how do I be a Christian in exile and in the lack of political power? And so like, that's fine. I think that, for example, the fact that he turns up the furnace, like, to make it five times hot. You don't have to say, well, sometimes your enemies are going to be five times as mean to you. That's not the point that I think that Daniel is trying to make. And so I think that one thing that I would caution pastors to do is don't make a mountain out of a narrative detail that isn't necessarily that important to the narrative itself. Um, and some, so I, and I think, and, I, and, I, and I'm saying this with like on memory, so I've not looked at this passage in general. Even something along the lines of, I think when, I think it's when, um, oh God, Gideon, and they're like, I think it's that when they they drink the water and the water is like the people who lap it up one way versus the other, and whether that displays some kind of 
battle strategy. Now, I'm not sure that really that's the case. You'd have to kind of look into the commentaries to see. But it could be that the whole point of that narrative is God wanted a really small amount of people so that he got credit for the victory. And what I want people to understand is that we need to keep the main point of the text, the main point, um, and not necessarily use, like I said, like flourishes the detail as major homiletical points that aren't necessarily what the author is trying to commend. Yeah, because that does create create additional problems for those who are who are trying yeah. to interpret it. Who are trying um, to interpret it. So one of the bigger questions that came, and I think this was in most, maybe 75% of the questions, is what do we do with the law? Um, yeah, <laughs> what funny. do we do with the law uh, in light of the New Testament? And then what is the law? Because okay. people were confused about that. Some were saying, is it just the Ten Commandments or is yeah. it a broader thing? Um, and so there's a yeah. lot of confusion about what the law is. And one of the reasons this is relevant is because the rise of Hebrew Israelism. And I, I was talking to Dr. Mason when he was on here and we, we were discussing Deuteronomy 28. And I was like, you know, a lot of prosperity preachers preach Deuteronomy 28 and ex, um, eisegete that passage in the same way that Hebrew Israelites do. And okay. so if you're growing up in the church that does that, when a Hebrew Israelite presents this information, it's easy for you to make that jump. So okay. uh, let's talk about the law. Can, can, I start, can I start with Deuteronomy 27 to 30? And yeah, I'll start it. there. And then, because like, this is, this is as a New Testament scholar, this gets on my nerves. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't have to just let I me cook for a minute. Okay. Go, go ahead. Go, go on your rant. There is an entire genre of biblical interpretation that reads the entirety of the Old Testament through the lens of Deuteronomy. And so Deuteronomy 27 to 30 is, is central to understanding not just um, the law, but the entirety of the biblical narrative, including the finished work of Jesus. So let me explain what happens in Deuteronomy 27. They've been in the wilderness for a long time. And then Moses comes and he gives them the law. And in the law, it says, Okay, you need to follow these rules, but we don't believe you're going to follow these rules. This, this, this is what Deuteronomy 27 to 30 says. You're not going to follow these rules. No matter what you do, you're going to mess up. When you mess up, God's going to send these curses upon you. These curses are articulated in 28, 29, and 30. But the in Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30, it says God's going to put the curse upon you, and you're going to go into foreign lands. You're going to serve foreign gods. You're going to do all of this stuff, and then God's going to call you back. That narrative that go that promises at the beginning of the entry into the promised land, you're going to come in, you're going to mess up, you're going to be exiled, God's going to call you back, is from 27 to 30, that's in Deuteronomy. Now, if you go and read the historical books, if you read 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Chronicles, they all describe, and if you go to the end of, I think it's 2 Kings, when it describes the exile of the people, they say that the people of Israel are sent to Babylon, just like it said was going to happen in Deuteronomy chapter 27 to 30. So they said it, they, and they even quote those passages, that because the people of Israel did not obey the law, God sends them into exile. So in the Bible, it says very clearly that the curses pronounced in Deuteronomy are fall upon the people of Israel through their exile to Babylon. That's what it says. So then you get to, sorry, this is a long conversation. Then, because it comes all through the Bible. You come back from um, the, the stories of Nehemiah and Ezra. And Nehemiah has it in Nehemiah chapter 9. The people, got, they come back and they said, here we are, slaves to this day in the land that God promised. So the people who carried out the Babylon come back, but they're still under the authority of foreign rule. And they say that there's still elements of these curses that are still in, in, in place. But what, what I want you to understand is there's no lost tribe here. They're saying it's the people who are sitting in Israel at the time of Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah says that even though they're back in the land, the curses are still in effect because they are not completely free. Fast forward to the New Testament. The New Testament, Jesus comes in and all of the passages around the coming of Jesus, when Jesus says, now the time has come, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. All of the passages in the New Testament that depict the coming of Jesus, depict Jesus as the end of the covenant curses that began with exile to now finally being fulfilled. So if you go back and look at the Isaiahic prophecies that Jesus is fulfilling, it is saying that 
there's going to come this time where God's going to act and forgive and, re and restore his people. All of the passages around Israel's restoration are being fulfilled in and through Jesus. So when Jesus dies for the sins of the world and he says it is finished and you get our buddy Paul in Galatians who says Jesus became the curse for us so that we can be forgiven by God. And so when Jesus dies on the cross for the sins of the world, he pays the final price related to the covenant curses outlined in Deuteronomy. What did the curses promise as their ultimate punishment? Death. And Jesus died for the sins of the world. He paid the punishment for the curse. The, the wages of sin are death. And so now that Jesus has died and come back, the covenant curses are over. Because the worst thing the covenant curse can do is kill you. And once you're dead, the curses are no longer applicable to you because you paid the full price. And that's the reason that we receive everything that we receive in Christ. So in Christ, what do you do? You're baptized with him. You experience his death for the sins of the world. And then you come out on the other side and you're in the new creation. And so for anybody who's in Christ, it is by definition that the curses no longer accrue to you. So the idea that there's a separate group of people who go off somewhere else and have a separate experience of the curses doesn't just violate Deuteronomy 27 to 30. It goes against the entire narrative of the entirety of the Bible that says the covenant curses fell upon the people of Israel in Babylon. And then at the restoration, those covenant curses are still in place until they're dealt with by Jesus. There's not a separate group of people who are suffering under the curses other than the people of Israel. So why does this matter for the Gentiles? And forgive me for going too long into this. Why does it matter for all of us who are Gentiles? Well, if the people of Israel were under the covenant curses, that means that if you join the people of Israel while they're experiencing the covenant curses, you yourself found yourself also a curse. So if you became a Jew in the first century and you were still under the authority of the Roman Empire, then you were still suffering the consequences of the national punishment for their sins. And so what Jesus is saying is that God had to remove the covenant curses from Israel so the blessings can flow to the nations. And so since Christ has died, for the sins of the world and paid the punishment for the curses. Now the curse is no longer upon anybody and anyone who comes to Christ experiences freedom from the curses. There is no other curse for anybody to suffer for other than the curse that had been already dealt with by Jesus on the cross. Yes. Rant over. We're not <laughs> going to listen, but that's what happens. Like read, read, read Nehemiah who says, we, we, the people who've returned, are the ones who are experiencing these curses. So find me a lost tribe in that narrative. So the idea, sorry, the idea that the curse somehow refers to after Jesus has died and raised from the dead, black people being enslaved in Africa just does, it's, it's real, I mean, enslaved here, it's just a, an obliteration of the biblical narrative. Mm -hmm. Now you're going to ask me a question about the law. I will try to regain my composure for a second. <laughs> no, I think that's that's helpful. So we're going we're gonna to switch gears and go into the law questions because yeah. there were a lot of questions around yeah. that. So we're going to start here. What is the law and this is what is the distinction between the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law? Well, people tend to think of the law as a series of rules, but the law is the Torah. The Torah is actually the first five books of the Bible. So the law itself, the Torah, which actually doesn't just mean law, it means instruction. And so instruction includes narrative. The story of creation is a part of the Torah. It's part of the law, it's part of Genesis. But then instruction comes through both narrative and law. But the other thing that you see in the Torah is music. So you have the, the song of Mir Miriam and the song of Moses, and you have like um, these parabolic events. And so the Torah or the law then is the first five books of the Bible that includes things like the Exodus. The Exodus is a part of the law. And so um, the law includes that entire body of literature, not just the Ten Commandments, and not just the regulations. It, 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 it's basically an instruction of what it means to be a part of God's people. And so one of the things that you see, well, I'll, I'll stop there and I'll let you ask the second question about like how the law functions. No, that, that's good. That I think that helps people reorient because when they think of law, they're, they're thinking of it through modern day. Yeah. So when you hear law, you hear law, order, police, this is what you should and should not do. Yes. And what you're helping 
uh, our audience to understand this, the law is way more comprehensive than do's and don'ts. It's better to think about the law as comprehensive wisdom on what it means to, to live. Mm-hmm. And what it means to, to live, and this is the reason why Jesus teaches in parables and he has a Sermon on the Mount. Jesus teaches you in story, parable, and like do this and don't do that. And so when God gave his people a, a means by which to build a life, he didn't just give them rules. He told them a story. And in that story, there's good characters and bad characters. And you learn both from the things that you should do by imitation and things that you should do by avoidance. And so the the, the, the important thing to think about is law as wisdom and instruction on how to live. And that wisdom is not just contained in the rules. It's contained in the regulation. For example, probably the most repeated aspect of the law is the Exodus narrative. And so whenever the people of Israel got really depressed about what's going on in their life, or when God went to pull people's card and say, remember who I am, he would say, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So that was a part of the law. So the law revealed God's character. What's God's character? God's character is the one who liberates. The other thing that you see repeated over and over again from the law is the creation account. God will say over and over again, who made the end from the beginning? Who called the things that weren't there and to make them there in the first place? It is I who is God and no other. So two things that you see repeated most consistently from the law are God as creator and God as liberator. And it's because God is the creator and liberator in the narrative that we saw that he then gives us instructions on how to live and how to order out, how to order the community that you see in some of the regulations of the law. Mm-hmm. So that that's the part that, that people are struggling with, the regulations. Yeah. What, so, uh, what are the what are the significance of that? And how do we how should we look at the regulations? Uh, yeah. the, uh, the restrictions. Um, yeah. The do's and don'ts through yeah. the lens of the New Testament. Well, I think I think that this is one of the questions that the New Testament struggles with repeatedly. And one of the things that Paul goes into great lengths to argue is that the law is good. It's given by God, but it was never meant to be the means by which man, people are justified before God. And so Paul refers to the law as our guardian or our custodian until the coming of Christ. Paul says that the law was good, but sin took advantage of the law to produce in us all kinds of covetousness that then brought death to us. And so Paul sees the the, the heart of the law, the instructions of the law, as being good advice for Christian faith and practice, generally speaking. But it was never meant to be the means by which we were justified before God. Paul thinks that God always intended to to justify us through faith in his son. This is the whole idea that like God had... Christ in mind, if we can say that language, we can use that language. God always intended to save the world through Jesus. And so I would say that the best way to understand the law as an opportunity for Israel to be separate from the nations, this is actually, he actually says is the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was that to separate Israel from the nations so that, that through Israel's obedience to the law, they would, they would be blessed by God. And then people would see that they were blessed by God and then want to imitate that law. And then through that, God's will for humanity would spread through the rest of the world. The problem was that the people who are meant to be the light to the world also had the same problem with the rest of humanity is that they were sinful. And so because the law also had provisions for judgment, God was glorified either through the people being obedient to the law or the people disobeying the law and then God judging them for their disobedience. And so what you see then is the second thing happens, that God is glorified through judging people for disobedience to his law. And so the point of all of that is to show, I think, ultimately in the fullness of time, is that what we really needed was a savior who can, who can help keep the law on our behalf and reconcile us to God. And so I think that it's best to understand Broadly speaking, the principles of the law as the instructions, the means by which we live and not see them as binding upon the consciences of Christians in every single um, place. There tends to be some kind of distinction between the moral law and the ceremonial law um, in kind of New Testament context, because you can see things like Paul will cite things from the law, like loving your neighbor as yourself is from like 
Leviticus. And you see that the general ethical worldview as to how we treat one another and the other aspects of the Christian kind of what we now call Christian ethics themselves come from the laws. For example, Jesus, when he sees that, like when he, when he talks about adultery, he doesn't say, well, the adultery was a part of the law. It's been done away with Jesus, done, done away with me. He's saying, well, actually, well, adultery deals with some of these external things. What we need to think about are the ways in which our own heart can be deceptive. And so you don't really have in the coming of the New Testament, the washing away of all of the law. It seems to me that you have the Christological reinterpretation of the law um, by the lawgiver, Jesus himself, who clarifies for us what the law is supposed to do. And so if I'm confused about like how the law functions in the life of the believer. I tend to do things like look at Paul and look at the Sermon on the Mount and look at the ethics that emerged from the New Testament, reading it as a whole that shows you the things that the Christians continue to do um, and continue to advocate for as a means by which of figuring those things out. And it does seem to be pretty clear that um, the Christians pretty quickly abandon as a requirement for Gentiles aspects of the ceremonial law. That's done in Acts, it's done also in Galatians. But it does seem to be the case that Jewish Christians are free to keep doing the ceremonial law as long as they don't require the Gentiles. So it seems to be, I know people love consistency. It seems to be an actual mixed economy in the New Testament. In the New Testament, there were Messianic Jewish Christian communities who trusted in Jesus and their salvation, but decided to continue to keep the law. There were, there were Gentile communities, the ceremonial law. There were Gentile communities who didn't keep the food laws. And Paul said that it's, it's fine for both of these communities to exist as long as the, the Messianic communities don't require um, th these um, ceremonial aspects of the law for their um, Gentile churches or the Jew Gentile churches that are united. Mm -hmm. That's helpful. I think one thing that probably may need some more explaining for our audience yeah. would be the distinctions between ceremonial and moral laws. So and the significance of those. I don't. I don't yeah. So let me let me give. Let's let's talk about Acts. Okay. Mm -hmm. In the book of Acts, um, there is a real question as to whether or not you have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses to be a part of this emerging Christian community. They have a a meeting in Acts 15 and in Acts 15, it says they don't have to be circumcised and keep the food laws, but they do say, and this is interesting. They say two things. Okay. You don't got to keep the food laws, but as a kind of a, um, kind of an acquiescence to, to the Jewish Christian conscience, don't eat the food with the blood still in it. Like that's particular, that's like culturally offensive. So just don't do that. Even though you kind of have a right to do it, don't eat your medium rare steak up in their face. And then he says, and also refrain from sexual immorality. And so what they're actually saying there is that actually the ethics, um, broadly speaking, we're not just saying do whatever you want to do. They're saying, okay, we're not going to require circumcision and food laws, but refrain from sexual immorality and don't eat the, the, the food that was, um, that was, um, struggle that was, um, had, had blood in it. You see the exact same thing in um, Galatians where Paul is arguing, if you read Galatians over and over again, Paul is arguing against circumcision as a means by which, as a requirement for Christian practice. And then he's saying, well, you don't got to keep the law. And then, well, then Paul goes, okay, you don't got to be circumcised to be a part of God's people. And then you trust in Christ by for your salvation. But then the real question that a lot of people ask is, well, then how then should you live? And then he goes and says, he talks about being led by the spirit. He actually says a lot of things. At first, you're led by the spirit. Then he talks about the fruit of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. Well, all of those things that are that are in the fruit of the spirit are also ethical ideas from the Old Testament. So it's not that, that, that the fruit of the spirit produces something in us that's radically different from the ethical life that God calls us to live in the Old Testament. It's just the shape of that looks a little bit different. The other thing that Paul actually says, though, he says a couple of things that you have. You have the Holy Spirit. The other thing that he actually says is you have the church. Because he also says later on in, in, in Galatians chapter six, if anyone is caught in sin, you who are who are spiritual should restore them gently. So in other words, you got the fruit of the spirit. But he says also sometimes you're going to have people in the congregation who are caught up in a sin. And it's the job of the church 
to 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 discipline and bring in the erring person. And so Paul says you have two things then in replace of the law as the means by which you order the Christian community. First, you have the spirit of God that produces in us the very kinds of character outlined in the Old Testament. And you have the Christian community who comes alongside you. So it's never about just you and Jesus. Paul says, no, no, no. God has given you the community. This is the reason why in um, Paul in other places talks about church discipline. The whole point isn't that in Jesus, you get this free for all to do what you want to do. It's that, that we now are responsible for one another. And so I would say, and then, and this is the important part. This may seem like it's a strange thing to say. When Paul says, well, what does the Christian life look like? It is often a Christological, a Jesus-oriented interpretation of the Old Testament. Jesus is kind of summed up in his life, death, and resurrection, the entire heart of the law. Like Jesus is God's compassion towards the foreigner, the widow, or the orphan, right? That is who Jesus is. Jesus as the sinless one is the holiness required of us in the Old Testament. Jesus, the teacher, who sits upon the who sits upon the mountain and gives us an instruction about what it means to be human is the Torah embodied. And so if you're following Jesus and his life and his teachings, you're getting the Christian interpretation of or the Christian reception of the heart of the Torah. And so I think that between the person of Jesus, the the the, the, the spirit who leads us and you have the community to which we're all accountable is how the Christian ethical life is shaped. And you can do those things and draw upon the Torah without saying it's the basis for our life and our salvation. Mm -hmm. That That's helpful. Um, and, and as I said, for those who are watching this, I'm trying to get a broad stroke of your questions, because if we go into all the, the weeds of every question, we'll never get through <laughs> every question. So I'm getting broad strokes. Uh, one of the final questions I'll ask you, uh, Dr. McCauley, is why does there seem this question came in as well? Well, I'm actually actually ask you two. I'll ask this one first. One came about uh, the passage in Chronicles, if my people will humble themselves and pray um, and seek my face, uh, then I'll hear from heaven. And mm -hmm. which you know, a lot of people, especially in the U.S., like to claim that for the mm -hmm. U.S. <laughs> You've talked about this a lot yeah. uh, in how we infuse our our patriarchy into the text. Um, yeah. How can you help our audience think through that passage? Because that is a go-to in Black and yeah. white churches. So um, what I want people to understand is there was a if-then logic to the covenant that God made with Israel. The covenant that God made with Israel alone is that if you do these things, then I will bless you. This is the promise. If you do this, you get this land. So when, when the people in the Old Testament were in trouble, they could turn to the covenant promises and say, if you do these things, God has promised you material blessing. The problem is, as we spoke about, and this is the thing I was trying to outline earlier, th if there's an if, then there was a then. And the then is, and this is what you read when you read the, the entirety of the Old Testament narrative, the then is they didn't actually do those things and they found themselves in the covenant curses. And the problem was that as long as you have an if-then kind of relationship with the covenant, eventually you're going to get enough people who are sinning to bring about God's judgment. So Jesus... When he comes, we now find ourselves in the new covenant. So the old covenant that had an if-then promise related to material blessings has now been done away with and been re replaced by the, the covenant rooted in the person of Jesus. And Paul actually talks a lot about like what you get when you are in the new covenant. The only thing that you promise in the new covenant is the person of Jesus himself. That's what you promised. You're not promised material blessing in the New Testament. Paul says that you, can, if you suffer with him, you will reign with him. And so in the, the shape of the new covenant is cruciform. Jesus entered into his glory through suffering. And so that means that the Christian will potentially enter into their glory through suffering. And so you're not promised a nation that is not under that covenant, has not been promised material blessing 
rooted and humbling themselves so that God will renew the covenant like he promised. Now, the tension between that is that you can hear from that idea that the only thing that you get as a Christian is the sweet by and by. No, but what the Christian actually has different than like the if then um, blessing that you have in the covenant of the Old Testament is the idea that God is a God of justice. And so because God is a God of justice depicted in Isaiah and in the rest of the prophets, God's justice is something that's always available to people, not even people who are in his covenant. So if you look at something like in the book of Daniel, in the book of Daniel, God comes to Nebuchadnezzar and goes, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm going to judge you because you're treating people poorly. And if you look throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, God judges nations for issues of economic exploitation and injustice, including Israel. And so we can we can come to America and say, America is not in a covenant promise with the, with God. So the God promises to materially bless America as a part of his covenant people. But we can also say at the exact same time, in so much as America is acting in a way that is outside of what God says for the world and how people should be treated, those nations can be subject to God's judgment. And so on the one hand, I do think that nations across whatever, Canada, Mexico, um, anywhere, can be called upon to act in just ways without saying that the, the fruit of that is the promised blessing that was given to Israel. Mm -hmm. that's, that's helpful. That's extremely helpful. Um, as we dive a little bit deeper into thinking about the Old Testament in light of the New, one of the big things is people think there's two separate gods. The God of the Old Testament is this angry, um, will, will have you to be stoned at any moment. And then in the New Testament, he has some behavior reform and he's all loving. Um, how can you help people who struggle with like the conquest narratives and seeing the consequences that happen in the yeah. Old Testament? How can you help them think about what's happening in the New Testament? And is there a a different version of God that shows up in each space. Yeah. I mean, the first thing you got to do is look at what Jesus himself did. And Jesus, like, first of all, this like, first of all, you need to understand the nature of the problem. Jesus throughout the old, the new Testament says repeatedly, I only do the things that my, I see my father doing. And he repeatedly refers to himself as, you know, God's own son. And it's clear from the narrative context that the God that Jesus is describing is the God of the Old Testament. That's what he thinks. And by his allusions, by the fact that he sits upon the Sermon on the Mount and evokes the Torah, the Jesus's own ministry, it's kind of a, a reliving of key events of the Old Testament. So Jesus himself, as depicted in the story, does not see this tension. And so, like, it, we have to be very careful of saying we are interpreting Jesus's own words and ministry and perception of God differently than Jesus himself. And so I think it's really, really hard to present, like, Jesus as being different from his father when he himself says, everything I see my father's doing, I do. Mm -hmm. And so, like, that's just like, so, like, we need to live with that tension and say, okay, who are we talking about who thinks that they're portraying themselves as being radically different? Jesus doesn't. So, but I, I want to take, so like just we got a problem with ties to question um, because I don't think that Jesus separates himself from the Old Testament in that regard. He said, I have not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Like he said, I'm going to bring in the inner heart of it. Mm -hmm. A couple of things I want to say about the conquest narrative or violence more generally speaking. Let me, let me take a step back to the conquest narrative last. Um, if you look at um, the Old Testament as a whole, what you actually see is that more often than not, God's mercy triumphs over his judgment. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is that Adam and Eve sin, God doesn't necessarily um, punish them with death immediately. He has mercy upon them. The people of Israel sin in the wilderness. God doesn't destroy them. God has mercy upon them. When God destroys, um, eventually, you talk about Israel sent into exile. God sends prophets. Most of the Bible, and this is what people think the Bible is repetitive. Most of the Bible is prophets saying, please stop doing this. 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 And then eventually, after about a thousand years, the people refuse to repent and then God judges them. And so I would say that the narrative that emerges, generally speaking, is not a God in the Old Testament who judges people in every case, 
for like immediately. One of the things that you see for, let me give you an example. Sorry, I know it seems important to keep these things in mind. So when God is um, is is conquering, when they're conquering during the conquest narrative and you have the story of Rahab who recognizes who God is and switches sides and God's gracious, not just upon her, but upon her family, then the point of that narrative at the beginning of the conquest is, well, if, if you are a foreigner and you, and you recognize the God of Israel and you repent and there's mercy for you, the next story that's told in the conquest narrative is the sin of Achan. And in, in Achan could be the whole point of the Achan story is once again at the beginning of the conquest narrative. It doesn't matter if you're part of God's people, even if you are part of God's people, but you don't have full devotion to Him, then you're going to be judged. So at the beginning of the conquest narrative, you have these two stories side by side. One is there's mercy for the foreigner, and then there's also a judgment for people who think they're part of God's people who don't live correctly. And so I, I think that one of the things we have to be careful of is stereotyping the actual Old Testament. Um, as it relates to what he really says. I mean, look, David is a prime example of it. Like Psalm 51, David is sinful, but God has mercy upon him. Now, I don't think, and this and this, and this, is just, in, in the conquest narrative, I don't think that the purpose of the conquest narrative is for us to feel warm and fuzzy at the end of it. It makes me uncomfortable. But one of the things that I would say, even the conquest narrative, and this is not to excuse the difficulty with it, it's to kind of put it in its narrative context. In Genesis 15, when God promises that he's going to um, give um, Abraham and his descendants that the, the land, he says that the sins of the Amorites have not yet reached their full. And that even the people who are in the land, they can't have it yet until their sin rises to the point of being judged by God. And even when Israel gets into the land, what happens to them? They get conquered by a foreign nation too. And so what you see and all of that is this idea that ultimately, and this is, this doesn't have to make us feel good. I'm saying this is what you get from the conquest narrative, is that ultimately God judges us. And that ought to make us feel uncomfortable. That doesn't mean that like, you know, every child or person who might have died during the conquest narrative was being directly judged by God for some sin they committed. It just means that what you see from the Old Testament as a whole is that God is a God who is merciful, but he is also a God who in the fullness of time brings judgment upon the people who are built against him. One of the, the last thing that I would say, and, and, and maybe the, there's actually two things I want to say about the conquest narrative. One is that as best as I can tell in the Old Testament, Israel doesn't fight any other offensive wars beyond the conquest narrative. So it's not that like God tells Israel to become this mighty empire that conquers every territory. It's that there's one particular place that um, God gives to the people, and then they're not allowed to go from beyond that. And so there aren't actually a lot of offensive wars in the Old Testament. There's the conquest narrative. And beyond that, any other any other battle that you see in the Old Testament are often rescuing, like Abraham's rescuing his cousins and stuff. And so it isn't to me this case that you have a God in the Old Testament who's sending his people off to conquer the entirety of the universe by the sword, um, in the name of God. It seems to be one particular instance where God, as an act of judgment, uses Israel to come and, and he gives them that land. And then Israel themselves find themselves under that same judgment. But I don't think that any of those things are meant to make us feel comfortable. I think that the way that I think about um, the conquest narrative and the, and the parts of the Bible that make me feel uncomfortable, more, more broadly speaking, is as I read the text from beginning to end, what do I learn about God as it emerges in the fullness of time? And the, the God who I encounter in this text is a God whom I, who I trust. And I don't see in that text, the text of the Old and New Testament, a God who hates humanity or loves humanity less than, I mean, I, I encountered a God who loves humanity more than I do. And that I trust that the God who sent his son to die for the sins of the world is a God who is in the, in the end going to be more gracious than I can imagine. And at bottom, some of these questions are around the idea of, do I trust this God with the judgment and in control of the world? And for me personally, I can. Now, as you relate to like the, the contrast between like the Old Testament and the New Testament, 
Well, you kind of see a similar phenomenon in the New Testament in the sense that Jesus is the last and the greatest of the prophets. He's more than that. He's also God's own son. He's the last and greatest of the prophets who calls upon the people to repent of their sins. And he dies, then we might be reconciled to God. And he offers that invitation. But the the Old Testament, the New Testament also depicts it in the end. God's going to judge humanity for its sin. And that's the good news because you know what we don't want? And this is the, and this, this, this is the real issue that underlines we don't want injustice to, to succeed. We do want the stepped upon people of the world to ultimately receive justice. We do want that. We don't want a God to say none of this stuff ever matters and everything is going to be okay at the end. We want the, the, the abusers and the predators to receive God's judgment if they don't receive it now. And so the real question is, and often the question is, do we trust God to make that decision? And ultimately, I do trust him to make that decision. It doesn't mean that I feel like, yeah, get him when I'm kind of reading the conquest narrative. It means that when these things are difficult for me, I acknowledge the limitations that I may have, and I do the best that I can to make sense of the God whose character emerges over the pages of the Old and New Testament. That's that's extremely, <clears throat> extremely helpful. It all boils down, as you said, do we trust God? We and, and, trust and when God? I when I when I say do we trust God, I don't want people to understand. I don't want people to understand it as a blind trust. Mm-hmm. Like you know, if you if, if 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 your girl got text messages that say I'm gonna see you and I miss you a lot, and them texts ain't for you, there's trust in their stupidity. I mean, like you know, pull yourself together. What I'm saying is. Based upon the, the narrative itself, the God who, who who's depicted as the creator, the God who's depicted as the God who liberates, the God who sends prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet to urge his people to repent, the God who sends his son to die for the sins of the world so that we might be reconciled to God, the God who has all power but chooses humility as the means by which to reconcile us to himself. Based upon those things, I trust him with the things that cause me difficulty. And so this is not a blind trust. It is a canonical, what arises from our reading of the Bible, trust. And it's a trust that is not just a trust that I have. It's a trust that other people throughout our, at least I'm talking about the black church tradition, who've read these texts and seen it in a God who's a friend and not an enemy. And so trust can be sometimes used as a, a way of turning off your brain. But I'm talking about the trust in it that emerges from a critical analysis of these things that then allows us to say, yes, I, I trust, I trust, I trust this God. Because there aren't like, there aren't 15 conquests. There's one. That one still gives me pause. But it's not the case that God is saying, go and conquer the world in my name. When God inaugurates his mission to the nations of the world. He inaugurates that mission when he when he commissions the disciples. He commissions them by means of persuasion. That's what he does. When he wanted to when he wanted to convert. Sorry, sorry. This this is important to understand. When you look at the um, the prophecies and things like Isaiah and Jeremiah, it says this. Is what it says. Israel's supposed to be obedient to God. God's going to bless them, and then the other nations were going to say. Oh, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to learn his ways. So even in the Old Testament, when the other nations that were non-Israelite nations wanted to come to Israel, it was persuasion and not conquest. It was come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. In the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel says any foreigner who's attached themselves and who keeps the law should be included in God's people. And so it needs to be it needs to be emphasized that, that, that the heart of conversion throughout most of the biblical story is precisely by persuasion, both in the old and the new Testament. That's, that's extremely helpful for, for our audience to know. Uh, I think this was a very rich conversation. Is there anything else, uh, Dr. McCauley, that you would like our audience to know as it relates to interpreting the old Testament, uh, that you would think would be helpful and also what books would you recommend that they look at uh, on this endeavor? Well, it's funny because I haven't even gotten to my actual discipline, which is the New Testament, um, very much as much as I would like. Um, I would say that if if someone wanted to understand, there's an entirely different conversation around the New Testament reception of the Old Testament. 
and how they do so. I would encourage people to look at some of what Richard Hayes has written about New Testament interpretation. Um, he has a small book. There's a big one called that's um, about the gospel. The small one called, I think, um, reading the gospels backwards. That'll at least get you an idea of understanding how the New Testament actually appropriates the old. Um, I would probably say that, like, and forgive me for being like a writing in here, some of the stuff that like N.T. Wright has written about how the Jesus in relationship to the Deuteronomic curses. Um, and probably, it's probably in his Galatians commentary. I haven't read it yet, but I'll probably take a look at his new Galatians commentary. Um, as it relates to the New Testament use of the old, I would say, once again, don't confuse narrative detail with homiletical significance. Um, ask yourself, what is the author trying to communicate? I would also say, don't um, understand like the Psalms are prayers offered to God and the prayers are allowed to be messy. And that sometimes those prayers are, are reflecting the emotions of the writer. And that's a good thing, but it doesn't mean that everything that the psalm says, God then is eventually going to do. Because you can say, may my enemy be filled with loin, you know, burning in their loins. And God could be like, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and so to understand like how those things work themselves out. And always keep in mind the narrative sweep of the Bible. That the star of every story is Christ. One of the things that my pastor taught me when I was first learning to preach, and I may I may still be bad at it, but he said every sermon needs to conclude with the birth, death, and you know, with 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 the proclamation of, of Jesus, the birth, death, resurrection, and return of Jesus. Because if you're preaching in the Old Testament, there is always a connection to the person of Christ. Paul, I mean, Jesus said that Moses looked. I mean, Abraham looked in my day, and he was glad. And I would say it's the job of the pastor to explain to the people how the principles that you're articulating in your message relate to Jesus. And that's different than just a Jesus addendum to the sermon, right? That like, now that I preached my sermon, I'm now going to preach Jesus and then convert you with an amazing close. No, no, you need to connect the close, what you say about Jesus to what you're preaching. One of the things, and maybe this, this is me rambling on, but I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for some of the things my pastor taught me. You, we have to preach and communicate in such a way that it feels like it's a repeatable phenomenon for the the the, the person in the pew. So in other words, the, the person ought to go, oh, I didn't see that before, but I understand what you did. And you modeled for me a way to read the Bible myself. So that then when I go home, I go home not just trusting in your brilliance, but in the word of God to, to guide me. So and as we preach and as we exegete, we're showing people how to find Christ there. We need to walk that exegetical journey so that people understand. So they're not dependent upon us, but the God whom we serve for our spiritual sustenance. Because all of us are passing through people's lives. They're going to go to another church. They're going to, um, you're going to go to another church. They're going to move. They're going to get married. All things, that, or they might not get married. Whatever happens, we need to say that whenever we have people in our congregations, we have them for a season of life. And during that season of life, it is incumbent upon us to make them better readers of the Bible, amongst other things. Mm -hmm. That is that's extremely, extremely helpful. I always tell people, as pastors specifically, people are going to study uh, how you teach. Exactly. So if you teach principles, they're going to yeah. study principles or they're yeah. going to go to the concordance and look up all the faith passages and just read them out yeah. of context. Because yes. that's how you taught them. And then you have people that have been Christians for years and don't know how to study scripture because yeah. their pastor only preach principles. And yeah. so when you teach them the word of God and the whole counsel of God, then they'll know how to go to the word of God for themselves and they can eat the whole roll, as Ezekiel said, the bitter with the sweet. And so and, and, and I think I think another danger is people really believe that people who have deconstructive, I mean, everyone's on their own spiritual journey, so I'm not coming for people, but like people who have deconstructive experiences of Christianity aren't the only ones who acknowledge difficulties in the text. They aren't the only ones who wrestle with them. Mm -hmm. And so our people need to see us wrestle with these ideas, acknowledge some of the emotional and even intellectual problems that we have, but then work towards a faithful way of believing. So they need, to, they need to be open. We need to be able to open with, um, I had a friend, I think a guy named Nijay Gupta. I think it was him. If not, he gets a shout out anyway, because I like his work. He talks about exegesis that turns on all the lights. 
Mm-hmm. You got to tell people what's actually going on because they thinking it. If you're not thinking it, you might as well say it and then help them find their way home. And so I really think it's really important to not just use doubt as a rhetorical ploy so that you can kind of work on your own issues. No, no, no. If you need to believe this stuff enough to preach it. But you do need to help people go from their struggle to a faithful way of believing. And I think that's something that, it, that is sometimes missing. One of the other things that I would say is like, most of us don't know our Bibles very well. And so we don't need 15 passages. We don't need you hopping from book to book because they don't even know what these books are. And they will sometimes feel like inadequate when they're trying to um, follow it. So if you have a text and you can just explain that text without turning to another text they don't understand, just expose the text that, that you have in front of you and have them understand it and apply it, you would do so much more for them if they've just understood that one passage well than if they've had 15 or 20 passages they barely understand. But I also I say I say that, and, and I want to say this other thing. I always want to be careful when I say like what pastors should be doing, because I know that y'all job is hard, and I know that, it, that 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 they're doing the best that they can to remain faithful. So the other thing I want to say is just thank you for everybody who's spending all of the time that they do in the Word and who doing the best that they can to exegete and serve their people well. Like your labor is not in vain. I'm I'm a product of a pastor who preached to us week in and week out. Yes, definitely we. We appreciate all the pastors uh, that that watch and pastors that that don't uh, watch. We appreciate your labor of love and how you love y'all to the saints yeah. and uh, your labor is not in vain. Thank you, uh, Dr. McCauley. Uh, for those who want to get connected to your um, blue checked Twitter account and your other accounts, how, how can they how can they do so? What's your handle? Um, I mean, at Esau McCauley, they can find me there. Um, I do a periodic column. It's supposed to be monthly, but sometimes I'm tripping um, with the New York Times. I, if it comes out on this comes out on Saturday, um, I know this is going to be super old eventually, though. But I got another column coming tomorrow on Sunday. Um, why Christians should resist systemic racism. So I'm looking forward to people seeing that. Um, so you can find my stuff. You just like do Esau McCauley New York Times. You can click on that and you can find some of my stuff there, too. Awesome. Well, we'll probably have to do a part two uh, with all the questions. RIP my mentions on that one because I mentioned Twitter for <laughs> and everything. Oh, my goodness. Okay, we'll, we'll getting that feelings. <laughs> we'll have to do a, a part two on, on this topic of the Old Testament. I encourage pastors uh, to, to definitely do some kind of workshop or Bible study on helping their, their parishioners because this is probably the number one question. Uh, that we get it, it the rooted question. I mean, yeah. the questions have different forms, but people are really struggling and some pastors on how to interpret the old Testament light of the new. So if you can equip your people, I think it will be a good benefit to them. And so they won't get swept away uh, by different, uh, different religious movements who manipulate the text. So yeah. um, help them get deeply, deeply rooted in understanding how to interpret the Old Testament like the new. And we hope this helps. I'm trying to get Esau to do a course on this. So if that's, if, <laughs> if I can, get, I'm, not putting, I'm, not, I'm not putting him on the spot, but if enough of y'all hit me up, then we'll get him to, to do a, a course on this topic. Thank you so much. Not going to be free. This was- <laughs> <laughs> We know it won't be free. Uh, They'll have to pay. But uh, (laughs) we're uh, we're trying to get some more content to help y'all get better equipped to know what you believe and why. Um, Thank you all for watching another episode of the G3 Project Podcast. Remember to register for Courageous Conversations 2021. It's, it's September 3rd and 4th in Washington, D.C. It's going to be amazing. We're almost sold out of in-person tickets, so make sure you register for those now. Or if you can't come in person, make sure you get a virtual ticket. You don't want to miss it. We have 28 uh, panelists, seven conversations. I mean, anything from Christianity and white supremacy, slavery in the Bible, politics in the pulpit, patriarch in the church. I mean, we, we're going to hit all the topics 
early African Christianity. Uh, the theme is Reclaiming Christianity. So make sure you register at CourageousConvos.org. Remember, you can get our curriculum still through Eyes of Color here. You can take online courses or become a monthly partner at Jew3Project.org. Until next time, um, no, remember here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you know what you believe and why. And until next time, grace and peace and God bless. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching Jude3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.